is Matt. Hey, it's Josh. What's good? It's your boy Darius. You are now tuned in to another episode of Dominate the Decade podcast. Let's go. I'm trapped in. I'm trapped in. I know it. Hey, I know I'm trapped. I'm trapped. Trap. I know I'm trapped. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look. I heard my nigga talking about me. Whisper getting close. Uh, nigga, same breaking bread. I don't even know you. This episode is sponsored by the Good Brothers over at Golden Wings by Friars Gate Kitchen in Irmo, South Carolina. Featured on episode seven of the podcast, this black-owned restaurant serves up the best wings and plenty of other things in Columbia. Located at 7971 North Woodrow Street, Suite 10, Jason and James are your go-to spot for wings, fish, turkey burgers, salads, and much more. On September 5th, Golden Wings will also be hosting an event titled Corvette Cruise In that will double as a listening party for local artist Bria Monet's latest album. Social distancing will be enforced. Y'all make sure to check out that event as well as James and Jason at Golden Wings. Now here's the episode. Hey fellas, so we are back. It seems like we've been gone for a minute, but I think it was just a week, right? Yeah, I think we took a week off, man. So uh, shout out to us for getting that rest in, but back with another episode. Back yes, sir. Yeah, I'm going to say back with another banger. A grad- virtual graduation just took place for us yesterday because we're recording this on Sunday. But we got two graduates in the podcast group, so congratulations to y'all, too. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Appreciate it, man. Hey, we out. We are out. <laughs> hey, after a long await, we are definitely out. <laughs> we out for good. Y'all already received all y'all's, I was about to say paperwork, but I guess we should say y'all's degree. Have y'all received that in the mail already? Yeah, so I got my diploma about a month ago. <laughs> so, so there was there really was no point to have the graduation moment. Yeah, and me and Adarius have opposite stories because I'm still waiting on mine. I swear I had like a little hang up uh, in between me getting my actual stuff and like applying for graduation and everything. So honestly, I was a bit surprised that my name was up on the board. But uh, once I saw it there, I was like, okay, it's cool, it's cool. I still got to get all this extra stuff. Uh, out of the way but um nah we're good man we're good it was funny because i because i know the backstory when i saw you post on your story that you were in the little video thing i was like oh he finally really really did it this time because i didn't <laughs> want to happen yeah bro honestly this whole summer my mom has been asking me um so what is it with graduation like when's your cap and gown coming in all this different stuff all these different <laughs> questions and i was like mom i really don't know like i really don't know and i was telling her that all the way up until Saturday. Um, and she ended up uh, asking me, where's the link to the virtual graduation? I ended up texting Darius too, because I didn't even know we were having it that day. Um, but she asked me for it and I told her again, I don't know. Um, she found it online and then she sent it to the family group chat with like all my like close relatives, my aunts and uncles and stuff. She said, Josh's uh, virtual graduation will be at 12 o'clock today. Um, my uncle, he replied back. He said, do you mean 12 o'clock as in 20 minutes from now? <laughs> and I just felt so bad. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> but it's all good, man. I like how they did it. Yeah. Uh, Darius, uh, did you, I guess for both y'all, did y'all, so y'all actually liked how they did the virtual thing as far as uh, pre-recorded, or did y'all would have wished that it would have been kind of everybody see it at the same time? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> so if you go on and you look, like it would have taken about nine hours to get through everybody's name, God. and I'm in I'm in arts and sciences, already a big college. My last name starts with S, so I'd have been sitting there a good little minute 
just like waiting on this live stream. So I'm glad that I could just like, all right, just skip to my name, screen record that, maybe watch, you know, Kaslin or Don Staley's speeches if I wanted to, and then just be out in like 20 minutes. Uh, versus like I said, sitting there those like nine hours potentially. So yeah, I'm, I'm real happy with how they did it. Yeah, honestly, I felt the same way. And I didn't know, like I just said, I didn't know that it was going to be this way until the day of. Um, but yeah, I was super thankful that it was, uh, it was done like that because I realized that it was starting at 12. And then I was thinking it was a live stream, but then I was like, man, I'm just not going to be here for it. Cause I was going to take a friend's uh, graduation pictures. Obviously you know that Matt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was telling my mom, I was like, yeah, I'm about to head out to take these graduation pictures. She's like, you're about to graduate. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, but, but not really though. <laughs> like not really, but, uh, I actually haven't even watched the, uh, the commencement yet like so i'll probably go home and watch it tomorrow like see my actual name i got that screen grab but uh yeah i've not watched it but i'm glad that i have the opportunity to go back and watch it so yeah i like how they did it and it dares you did you go ahead and watch like your name kind of be called or whatever did you go ahead and do the whole process already yeah so since i'm home i literally don't have a life anymore so i was <laughs> on there at 12 just because i had nowhere else to be nothing else to do uh so i went ahead and like i watched I guess Kaslin's first speech, Don Staley's speech, which is really good. I like that. Um, and then I started to watch, like, you know, everybody in, like, arts and sciences thing. So I was like, you know what? Let me just fast forward to mine. Uh, everybody else can just go on and be great. Congratulations to y'all. But I'm not sitting through it. And so, yeah, I was on at 12. And just you got it done. Yeah, because as a matter of fact, what I was telling Joshua is that you were the reason I even knew that the link was out because a lot of people were kind of looking for it. And I was like, yeah, I just tell everybody, just go to Darius Facebook. So you probably got a lot of <laughs> so you probably got a lot of traffic going through your Facebook. But since it was graduation, any like great memories or moments that y'all have obviously during y'all four years at USC that y'all want to talk about? Ooh, that's Man, a question. That that is a good question, bro. I feel like <clears throat> some of the main ones or maybe the hallmark in my opinion, would be uh, freshman year whenever we went to the Final Four. That yeah. was That's going to be something I tell my kids for sure because hey, I, I think it's pretty safe to say we're not going to be going back to the Final Four anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but, bro, that team was just magical. And kind of watching them the whole season, the craziest thing was they didn't even look like they could make it to the Final Four. Like, during the season, we had a pretty up-and-down season. Like, obviously, the team was good. Um, but yeah, that run during the final four or during the tournament was like, man, these boys really are about to do it. And when we beat Duke, that was crazy to be on campus during that time was like, man, I'm gonna really remember this. So that was probably it for me sports wise. It's I was about to say, it sounds like a magical time. It was funny because I was in the Clemson Bridge program during this time. So I remember going back up to Clemson that day and, like, watching it for a little bit on the TV and was hoping that they did not win the game. And I think – I don't know if they won or not that day. But, uh, yeah, so it sounds like a magical time, right, at, during that time, obviously, at USC. Yeah. There's what about you? Uh, I was honestly thinking the same thing because, like, I remember I lived in South Tower, which, for anybody that doesn't know, it's an 18-story building. And I lived on the 13th floor. And I remember, like, you know, okay, we got the notification we were watching it or whatever. It was like, all right, we beat Duke. We, I ran down 13 flights of stairs. <laughs> I don't know why everyone just, like, had the same collective thought. But literally, the second we beat Duke, it was like, all right, Thomas Cooper Fountain. Just run nice. straight there. Everybody. <laughs> and, like, I don't know. I jumped in the fountain. I'm not going to lie. It was disgusting. And I've re 
kind of regretted it every day since. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but I was in that fountain immediately. And we were just like cheering, having fun. Somebody brought this speaker. Uh, we were begging Pastidius to like, you know, give us a day off class, which obviously he didn't, but I'm not bitter. Yeah, it was just a great time. The, um, the only other time I think that kind of rivals that in my head is like my first like homecoming. And so freshman year, we had Ray Schremer and they were coming like right off having Black Beatles. Yes. And so like that was just another lit time to be on campus. And it was just a great time. Oh, man. Yo, I remember that homecoming like it was yesterday, bro. It was a uh, you remember they took forever to come out, bro. Like it was something where they had a super delay. They had like the the performers that came on before them. They had finished performing. Oh, my God. And we were all just sitting there like waiting. But when they did come, it was lit. Uh, I actually had one of my friends that I came with. He left. So it was really just me and my other friend. Um, but no, 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 that was really a good performance. Um, shout out to Ray Murder and the boys. I remember the, uh, I just remember the opening act for them was some girl, I think her name was, I'm not going to say her name because we, roast, we roasted that woman to no end. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> the Black USC group chat was going off about that woman. I felt so bad. Was I talking trash too? Yes. <laughs> but still, I, oh my God, I remember that. Yeah, so we were up there in Tiger Town, and I was because I think Waka Flocka was coming to Greenville. Shout out Waka Flocka. It's like we'd have a problem with it, but we were like they had Ray Shrum or whatever his name is, and coming to USC, and like he was in at that moment. Like Black Beatles is uh like really just according to everybody was just like the song of that time. At yeah. Time. And so I'm like, man, look at what they got going on at USC. Like I need to work hard out here. But uh, yo, so that's great. That's that's yeah. dope. Man. Yeah, yo, thinking about it, that really was peak race murder or i don't even know how to say their name bro it's like murder or something like that that was really peak uh of their career because i think that was the summer where they had that little frozen challenge or whatever what yeah, was it called yeah. where they had the black beetle song and it was just like people were like standing the mannequin yeah. challenge the mannequin challenge yeah yeah i remember that but yeah that was that summer but man those were great times for sure yeah, so, but uh, I guess to switch gears a little bit here, we're going to go ahead and talk about, I guess, our discussion for the day. The Master P documentary has come out mm -hmm. on BET, uh, No Limit Chronicles. It's funny because we were just talking about in one of our previous episodes, so if y'all listening, go tune into the previous ones, about how BET needs to switch up their content a little bit here. And I feel like they heard, they heard our cry, and they decided <laughs> to do so. And this documentary is so cool because – it's a little bit different. Like it throws in some like, I don't know how I want to describe it. Like real life situations with like actors, but then yeah. it goes back to shows you video and then it goes back to shows you like live footage. And so you really always are able to get a pretty good visual understanding of what took place during those times. Yeah. But to give a little background. So Master P is from Louisiana, New Orleans, correct? Yeah, New Orleans. Yeah, and so he all started off. I didn't realize how good of a basketball player he was. And so he ended up going to the University of Houston, but he caught an injury. Like, not caught an injury, but he got injured. And the thing, I think a lot of people didn't understand how deep his basketball roots were. He always attaches, like, basketball to being the thing that kind of got him out the hood. Mm. And so you can only imagine, you get all the way to the University of Houston, which at that time is not how Houston is now for basketball. It was one of the premier programs. And you get injured and you got to come back home. And all your homeboys and stuff are, like, looking at you like, man, you were supposed to have made it. Yeah. And things like that. And then so he kind of started getting into a little bit of the drugs and whatever else that was going in. Because that's a rough part of Louisiana he's from. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and I thought that story about him 
kind of using basketball as an escape. That's kind of like the story with uh, Stephon Marbury a little bit, where he was mm-hmm. like, man, this is really my ticket out. And that's the story of a lot of uh, athletes out there. But uh, Master P, Percy Miller, born Percy Miller, uh, definitely a, a goat out here, definitely doing big things. So the people that uh, he came back to after he, I guess, failed at college basketball, obviously he had the injury. But those people he came back to, they probably thought, man, this guy, like, blew his opportunity. He's not going to be anything big. But he definitely proved them wrong for sure because I feel like he de- he's done even more um, than he ever could, like, playing basketball. Definitely. And then he wasn't profit off the NCAA system either. Yeah. So, like, he, whenever he decides, and we'll talk about it later, he decided to join the league. He was as a player, you know, a paid player. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so he came back home. I, I did, first of all, did y'all know that Romeo – this is sounds so bad. Good thing we're not playing at black card games. Those guys I did not know Romeo was his son. How did you not know? I, I saw the Romeo show, and I was like, oh, they're acting. But I had no idea that was actually his. And so when I saw Romeo – I think he's also the producer of the documentary. Mm-hmm. And so I saw him pop up, I'm like, oh, Romeo working with him again. And I'm like, my dad, I'm like, whoa. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, bro. I feel like that is uh, kind of common knowledge. Like, that's <laughs> the knowledge, you know? Like, Master <laughs> P and his son, Romeo. I remember the Romeo show because uh, Master P used to be on there too, right? Yeah, he yeah. played his dad. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. So, uh, maybe you did just think it was just acting. But, yeah, that's his dad, bro. But, crazy. And then also he has the two brothers, C. Murder. And I had heard of C. Murder before because him and Lil Boosie were – bunk mates in jail before Bootsy got out obviously but I didn't know and I but I figured they kind of foreshadowed a little bit whenever Master P was saying I kept telling him that's not a good name that's not a good name and it would end up that he would go to jail apparently they they don't believe that he did it but you know he got convicted or whatever and so they're still trying to get him out now but he also had another brother that was killed that I think he kind of always hinted at was a little bit on the rougher side of the uh the spectrum I guess you could say yeah. and he probably just didn't have basketball to kind of you know get him out yeah, I think one thing that uh, specifically this part of the documentary that I really like, I liked that it highlighted was that, you know, Master P, he didn't start selling drugs because like, oh, it was like this super glamorous thing. Like he did it because he had no other option. Yeah. Like he couldn't go get a job because like even when he was working, he wasn't getting paid. Mm-hmm. And like he couldn't make basketball work because like, you know, he got injured, which wasn't his fault. So like it was literally the only thing that he could do. So. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the story of a lot of people that get into these negative things. Like, of course, you're going to have people that if they want to do bad, they're going to do bad. Like, uh, But then there's other people that are kind of drawn into these things kind of by force, but not by uh, kind of not by having a choice. Um, yeah. So you can definitely see how uh, Master P kind of got drug into this life. And I thought it was really eye-opening, even from the viewer, but especially for Master P whenever uh, going through his life, when I think it was his grandmother or his mother, um, they laid out the address, like a black dress saying, uh, this is going to be the dress I wear to your funeral if you continue with this lifestyle. And uh, it was his grandma because it was the same lady that's uh, beating the windows of the car that he bought uh, with his drug money. But uh, that scene wherever she was saying how she was going to show up to his funeral in this, if he stays on the same path, I was like, yo, that would really shake me to my core. My grandma came and said, yo, you're really going down the wrong path and you're going to die before me. So I thought that was interesting. 
and it's a prime example of telling you what you need to hear, maybe not what you want to hear. And that was probably the exact thing she had to say. Because sometimes, you know, you're young, you'd be a knucklehead a little bit. It's like, I got to get something to get him to change. Because I can't make him change, especially if I'm surrounded by this environment where it's like, okay, that seems like the way out. But I think that hit him deep. And uh, it also talks about how family-oriented he was. And so for her to see the person say that, that probably took him, you know, it kind of took him a little, uh, like, oh, wow, like that, this is for real. And his grandfather, y'all saw his grandfather was killed because the, uh, the I don't know if the nurse or the doctor, whoever was working at the hospital, um, I'm not sure if it was a nurse or a doctor, they gave him, the, they gave his grandfather the roommate's medicine, and that caused him, his grandfather to die. And so he couldn't. Oh, yeah. And so he ended up taking that $10,000. They got in a settlement and moving out to Oakland, if I'm not mistaken, and starting a radio. What was it called? Like a like a record store. A record store. That kind of kind of got things going right there. Kind of got yeah. the transit traction going. Yeah, and you can kind of see how uh, out of tragedy like that, they all said that their dad, well, Master P's dad, um, dying was a huge factor in their family and he was like the stable person in their family so when that happened it kind of struck them all hard but you can kind of see through tragedy comes triumph because this started uh the domino effect of him becoming this mogul this business person uh who is getting it by any means necessary so you can kind of see how that played a factor into this grand story yeah and i think that's if i remember correctly that's even where he got the name from because like he kept saying you know my grandfather used to tell me that like there's no limit to what you can do if you dream big or something like that i'm paraphrasing mm. but like i mean it's obviously no coincidence that like you know he goes on to use the ten thousand dollars that he gets from his uh grandfather's malpractice suit to start no limit records like you know so yeah like you said just, you know it all you know goes full circle <laughs> And I think it's very, it was very important for us to see that he didn't start off as like the rapper that was popping first things first. It was like nobody was really listening to him at first. As a matter of fact, they kept calling him the country boy because he was in California and they were used to, and I don't know if Tupac was the guy back then, but they were used to a certain style of rapping and so they didn't really like him, but he just kept going to the studio. And I've been watching a lot of his interviews lately and he's like, and I knew some of the guys that were coming with me didn't even they didn't even like rock with me. They didn't think my music was good. They just were using me for free studio time. Mm. But they, he just stayed persistent to it. And at some point, I guess, I know we're fast forwarding a little bit here, but I thought oh, a very major point of his career was whenever he had to pay the $25,000 just to meet up with Michael Jackson's lawyer. Yeah. Was yeah. it his lawyer? Yeah, it was, it was his lawyer. A, yeah, it was a lawyer. Yeah, so he met up with him for $25,000 just for a piece of information. Because now the record company was going a little bit there and his music was kind of getting a little bit better. And he, I guess he won ownership. And so the, what was the deal? Was it 8515? 85-15. So the Michael Jackson's lawyer told him, uh, get the distribution deal with Priority Records and you take 85 and they only take 15. They just distribute it out. You come out with the content. But what comes with that is now that you don't have a record company behind you, you have to do your own marketing and all that other stuff, which you're going to have to put money up front for yourself. And, but obviously in the long run, it was worth it. Yeah. And uh, I thought this 85-15 deal, um, first off with Michael Jackson's lawyer telling him that, that had me thinking like, why didn't Michael Jackson do an 85-15 deal? Like I was thinking, you know how much money that man would have made like if he would have had an 85-15 deal? So maybe that's something that uh, he learned in the game from experience, but with Master P coming and paying 25 grand just to get that information, 
somebody like normal, uh, how thinking small minded might say, oh man, I'm not paying 25,000 just to sit down with somebody. You know, those yeah. people on Twitter that'd be like, oh, would you rather have a million dollars or dinner with Jay-Z? <laughs> and that's what that reminded me of a little bit. But uh, obviously that information was worth a good bit of money, way more than that 25 grand because he ended up making a lot of money off of that deal. So it's like, man, information really is the key. Yeah, that's for sure. And also with the Jimmy Iovine thing, he references a lot. Jimmy Iovine, is that his name? Yeah, that sounds right. So he went and took the meeting with Jimmy Iovine, and Jimmy Iovine told him to go ahead and sign with Interscope for a million dollars, and he was going to take all your likeness, which is just what the NCAA does. So I think people hear that and be like, oh, that's terrible. It's like, yo, everybody's cousins doing this when they go play at Clemson and USC. But that's neither here nor there. And so, it, um, Darius, what did he say? You just took it about words out of my mouth. I think it was his, uh, his friend, but, like, also business associate. They were like, you know, if you walk into a business meeting and they offer you $1 million for, like, your likeness, your – your music or whatever, then that means you know that you're worth a hundred million at that point. So you just move accordingly. And Master P always says, and at that meeting, he only had five hundred dollars in his pocket. So he says, some when he got back on, I don't know if they drove or if he got back on the plane. Some of the dudes were about ready to fight him. He's like, you know what, a million dollars could done, bro. We're broke right now. But obviously, he did what was best for him and believed in himself. And I think later on was whenever he came across the eighty-five fifteen thing, and then he kind of took off there and built No Limit. And I did y'all realize how big of a deal like that no limit the whole record label was? Did y'all understand uh, that before? That's that's what I was just about to say. Um, and maybe this is because I didn't really grow up with that type of music being played in my house or like that type of culture. Um, but I really did not know how big no limit was to that time frame, that period of time. Um, and of course you like hear about the well-respectedness of Master P and the game and everything, but it's like, from my own memory, I didn't really see Master P as this like mogul guy, but of course we know that's how it's supposed to be like, uh, with media and everything kind of portraying how people look and what people do. But I never really uh, realized that he had this going on that no limit records was this big and had this many people and were selling this many albums. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot throughout even just the first two episodes of this documentary. Yeah. Like for example, in 1997, I think he kind of ran hip hop to be honest. I think that's yeah. what they said on documentary yeah. too. I think we kind of grew up a little bit more on the cash money with Lil Wayne. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. Cause those Lil Wayne bird, man, I think did Drake, I'm pretty sure Drake yeah. had cash money. Yeah. Yeah. Because he always talks about he used to be the uh, guy on the back of Lil Wayne's tour bus and stuff like that. So we kind of grew up on the back end of that. And they popped up later on, too. But one part I really wanted to emphasize was I didn't realize how he kind of freed Snoop Dogg. Mm, me neither. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was crazy. Like, Snoop Dogg was saying he had sold a whole bunch of records with Death Row Records, and he had not seen a million yet. And then as soon as he got with... Master P, he started seeing a couple million really uh, really quickly. And also Master P to be able to go up to Suge Knight and meet him up in the jail and be like, yo, I want to get this guy from you. And it seems like at that time, nobody's really messing with Death Row Records and Suge Knight for what it's worth. Yeah, to this day, honestly, Suge Knight's still not a person you just walk up on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. And also, but at first, whenever Suge Knight picked up the phone and called 
Master P and says LA, the LA, LA or California isn't big enough for both of us. And I think most common people would have been like, you know what, big fella, I'm gonna take my talents back to Louisiana. <laughs> There's not a problem. And so Master P tells because he Master P is from a different environment, but you know, just a different part of the country, same environment. So he says, so when you moving? And I was like, I feel like at that point, Shug Knight's like, okay, this is a boss. Like he's yeah. not scared of whatever else is to come. So. Obviously, as the documentary progresses, things keep getting bigger and bigger. He hops in a lot of different things, whether it be like movies and stuff like that. Or, and I didn't realize this. And I was going back and watching the movie about it, about it. Yeah. I was going back and watching yeah. it. It's on YouTube. It's uh, very, you know, grady because I'm sure it came out on DVD at that time. But it really just showed how he can hop in different things. This man was in WWE. He obviously had the best uh, label selling industry or whatever right at that time among many other things yeah and i felt like uh him venturing into movies was another step that was way before his time because now you see people like lebron or kevin durant um doing these different things on the court but also outside of the court they're like making productions and all these different things um but master p was doing that in the 90s and even going a step further than partnering with these uh these filmmaking companies he was like no nah, i can make it my own and distribute uh distribute it out to the masses so i thought the way he did that as well as putting other people on in his circle and on his label into these movies and into anything that he could get them into uh that's that vertical integration that uh nipsey and so many other people talk about and he was doing that from jump yeah and like another or two other things about that First off, with the movie, the fact that, like, everything in the movie was actually happening, like, there wasn't, like, special <laughs> effects or anything like that. Like, these people were actually doing drugs in this movie. <laughs> like, actual people who are addicted to drugs are actually doing the drugs, like, on camera. And it, that was just mind-blowing to me because it's like, bro, you could have hired somebody for that. <laughs> like, you could have – there was some wiggle room in the budget for, like, special effects or something. But um, but other than that, uh, I was watching an interview. I think it, it was Eddie Griffin, actually, who was like kind of a big, who, not kind of, he is a big comedian, uh, was especially big during the 90s. And apparently, I believe it was Master P and Mystical. They had uh, opened up for him because I don't think they were like super big just yet. Um, and I actually think it might have been before Mystical signed with No Limit Records. But anyway, so they opened a show for Eddie Griffin or whatever. And, they like, Eddie just let him do it for free or whatever. Didn't, like, charge him or anything like that. But it, like, helped them get more exposure. And so later, like, 10 or so years after that, Eddie Griffin was, like, in downtown L.A. shopping or whatever and ran into Master P. And Master P was like, yeah, you know, I really appreciate you looking out for me way back when. Like, I wasn't, like, as big as I am now. And he's like, are you working on any, you know, movies or anything? And Eddie was like, yeah, I got the script that I've been working on. And Master P just wrote him a check for a million dollars, like, right there in the store, wherever they were, just, like, pay him back for, like, what he did, you know, 10 years before. And so, I mean, like, like you said, it just goes back to show you, like, he's always been a person who's, like, believes in that vertical integration, but also, you know, looking out for the people who looked out for you. So I thought that was cool. And since you're, since you're talking about money, and this man, this man, Master P, it seems like he added a zero on any time somebody asked him for an amount of money. And, like, I think it was Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg was like, man, I didn't need $3,500. I'm broke right now adds a zero instantly and i could imagine to anybody young 
Oh, I don't care who you are. A man is adding a zero every time you ask him for a check. It's like, let me go ahead and get with him and do whatever he's with, especially yeah. I'm talking about a position where I feel like I'm being robbed. Facts, uh -huh. facts. And I was just about to say, uh, throughout the documentary, it seemed like this whole him writing checks was like a reoccurring theme. Like that was just yeah. what he was doing. Uh, anytime there was a problem, he's like, oh, let me bring out my checkbook. And uh, he even said it whenever he went to go get Snoop. No, 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 it was with Mystical. Um, and I think he was on another label and he kind of, uh, took him from another label too. He pulled up to the record label. Um, he said, Hey, how much do y'all want? And then, uh, they set a price and he wrote out his checkbook and he's like, all right, we're out. So this whole checkbook thing, <laughs> I, I'm trying to get to that level where I can just pull out the checkbook, write a number add a zero and then hand it to somebody. And really, I've, you know, money speaks and power, too. Like, whenever you can go do something like that, there's a lot of conversations some people probably have to quiet down about just because they can't hang with their financially. And he also told one of those executive producers or whatever, he was like, you think because you're white that you're right. Mm. And that became a thing. And it's like, but no, not whenever I can meet you at the same level with the same level of influence, maybe more if I'm bringing the culture with me. And so it's like, you sit right across that table kind of as my equal, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. There was also just, like, the standard he made them live up to, too. Yes. He was like, yeah, y'all not going to be them, like, randoms just in the club, you know, talking to all these random, like, loose women, just going out, just, like, partying all day, all night, because that reflects on the label. Which is, like, completely opposite from what kind of, like, the, the rapper image is today. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about that. I was like, wait, this seems like what is glamorized. This is what makes everybody want to do it, because you can have all those different things. But he also says... Cause he's like, I don't know if he said not the sergeant, but he says I'm the. There's a word he Lieutenant. uses. It's something like that. He's like, I have to make sure everybody gets home, and so he calls himself that. And it's some sort of military phrasing. I can't. Might have been general. Yeah, he says something like the general. We'll just go with that. He's like, because I'm the general, I have to make sure everybody gets home. And also the work ethic, you could tell his work ethic because when he had those guys in the studios and they were creating the album, I think the the one of the ladies, I can't think of her name right now. She's like their main. Yeah. Girl. Yeah, she was saying it's like a workout. You go in this studio, you do the like, you do the uh, the feature. You go to the next one, you do the feature, and you keep going. And they're saying it's like a workout. And I don't think most rappers were used to anything like that. Like that, that's uncanny. That's but obviously that's getting a lot done in a short period of time. And then I think so. If you're selling these all, you're coming going platinum and all these different records, it makes sense that you're doing this. Especially if you have like a family feel. But then it's like okay, he's pushing us a lot, but that's because he believes in us. Yeah, and uh, to that point about them hopping from booth to booth, uh, one of them said that uh, they didn't even get time to listen to the song after it was done. Yeah. They just had to go to another booth, so he was really on them. Yeah, that's what he said. He said the engineer will listen to it. That's their problem. Yeah. You go on to the next one. And one thing that was a really good point, because you could expect – you because for some reason I heard I've heard this in a lot of interviews – we, a lot of times it's like, oh, a black guy's handling the money. Oh, he's jitting me out. Because he's like, you wouldn't say that to Jimmy Iovine, but for some reason mm -hmm. you tell me that. And so a lot of those guys end up, after a while, they're prepared to be in some tension. People started leaving. And Master P said, I'll rip the contract up in front of you because I don't want you to be here if you don't want to be here. And mm -hmm. then, like he said, y'all went to go work for the other places, and that's the last word of y'all. Mm -hmm. Whenever y'all were here, y'all thought we're looking over your shoulder, I guess at some point. Because, you know, egos do get in the way naturally, especially when you got yeah. big money like that. But as soon as you leave, it's kind of like, okay, go ahead and go. And I feel like that's a really good way of doing things. I just feel like most people aren't in that position of power to where they can do that. Because a lot of times, it's just like, when you know, high school football, there's that one kid that's so disrespectful to the coach, but he's the talent. Yeah. Yeah. It's always that one.
And so, but, but with it seems like the way Master P does things, it's like, nope, we'll rip it up right in front of you. We just, and you're going about your way, and uh, we'll do whatever else is best for the company. I feel like that's better just like for not only the artists, but just like the listeners as well. Cause I think what happens in a lot of those cases is, you know, artists just like put out an album, oh, cause I have to, not because I want to. And then that just means that we just get like a bunch of like mediocre stuff when, you know, if you could have just like gone on to do more creative things or just do different things creatively, then like you would actually push like your heart and your soul into it. And we would actually, you know, enjoy it versus you just get putting out like a five out of 10 album. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think uh, Snoop Dogg's role in this uh, production, as well as just like in the rap game, um, his relationship with Suge Knight, like you could see it in the documentary, like he was like, oh, F Suge Knight, all this different stuff just out in the open. But all that stems from Suge Knight and that record label kind of just having full creative control over Snoop Dogg. And it's like, no, you're, you're the talent, but we tell you what to do. And I feel like that's never a good spot to be in for either party, because if you have the artist or anyone for that matter, um, not really rocking with the people that are at the top and that are pushing these out. And it's kind of like a beef between the two. I don't really think that produces the best, uh, the best product. So you even see that multiple times today. Uh, The whole music industry seems like it's coming off of that kick where it's like, the power is in the hand of the people, the record labels and everything, and the music artists are really just kind of serving them. Now it seems like there's a shift between, or from that to something where it's like the actual artist has the power. So that's good. But uh, even recently you see it with like Frank Ocean or uh, even Rihanna, why Rihanna is not releasing music uh, because they're in these deals that they're taking all this money and it's really like, oh, you make this whole product, but we're going to cut this to this person, cut that to that person. Dude, like split it up however we wanted to. Um, I'm glad to see that that's shifting now, but it just makes you wonder what things would have been like before if that would have been in place back then. I I can only imagine if what it would have been like, especially because back then it wasn't about streaming. People had to actually go out and buy CDs. And so what used to end up happening was you were selling the CDs out your car, and the next thing you know, you get to sign to Interscope or whatever, and they help promote you out. But imagine if you could have been selling, like kind of a Nipsey's approach, and you just continue that the whole way throughout. But one thing that is very important in the music game, too, a lot of guys talk about now, is that everybody isn't meant to be independent. Mm-hmm. A certain yeah. kind of guy is meant to be independent because they're willing to put in the work between the marketing and all those different aspects. But it, some people just need a check. Like, and then y'all do that, and then we can kind of have the checks and balances. Maybe we need to grow you up a little bit more because you may you may not know who to go to for the resources to be, make you become better. But I guess guys obviously like Master P, those guys are built to be independent. Uh, and I feel like that is a testament to, like, having those connections as well, um, whether it be on the artist side or on the, the upper level executive side, like knowing these different people. Um, and he kind of talked about how No Limits formed um, with him just kind of seeing talent. It's like, oh, you're on my label now. Like, let's get you in. Uh, <laughs> and really just bringing people in that he saw potential in. So, yeah, I feel like that is 100% true. Not everyone can do the independent stuff, but those that can really do uh, succeed. Just reminds me of LLC Twitter. Like, oh, I didn't <laughs> buy my girl a Birkin for her birthday. I got her an LLC instead, so. 
<laughs> like that's just not everybody. Like that's yeah. just not like you said. Like you were saying. Like, and I'm kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but some people were made to be entrepreneurs, and like somebody has to work for an entrepreneur. So. Mm. That's real. And then all all this is going, and while they're at their headstone right now, Master P decided he wants to go chase out a dream of playing basketball. I would think more people probably thought he was going to try to own the team at this point. But anyway, I have no problem with it. You want to go play in the NBA, go do so. And he emphasizes a lot. And it's funny that J. Cole at this very time, which is really good for our podcast, is trying to <laughs> is trying to potentially go play pro basketball because now I've been listening to a lot of interviews with Master P's giving them advice. And so he's saying stuff like, look, they're going to hate you. Like when they first get in, because there's a lot of these guys been working their whole life and they feel like because you're J. Cole, you just walk right into it. And just he started. Did he start in Toronto or did he start in Charlotte? So I think he started in Toronto, and then uh, it was something about him not making the team. And then he did the same little tryout or whatever with the Hornets. And that game that he was playing was a preseason game. Yeah. And he talked about them like wanting to bring him on or whatever. But I think someone up top said, "Hey, you're a pretty good basketball player, but." We don't like your music, so we're not bringing you on. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the order of it. And then Charlotte at that time, it seems like to the world, was known as, like, in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, we really can't have you in this little town, Charlotte. But he talks about how there were 15,000 people out there ready to uh, sign his autograph. And also another thing that he was talking about was, and this is not just this is not just a documentary, y'all. We just give y'all everything master be. Y'all gotta go out here and find it yourself. Nice. But <laughs> they wanted him because you know most of the time in professional sports, the rookies have to do stuff like you know maybe like do the laundry, go out buy people food, et cetera, et cetera. But when he got to Charlotte, I'm pretty sure it was Charlotte. And he said, "What the guy's his friend now?" They're like, "Hey, you're a rookie. You need to carry our bags." And then he looked at him. He goes, "I'm a super rookie." But he said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, but I'm richer than all of y'all. I'm not carrying nobody's bag. And they almost end up getting in a fight about it. As a matter of fact, he's supposed to have a side note. He's supposed to have a Slam Magazine documentary going about, about his basketball career. But anyway, uh, yeah, they got So they almost got into it. And he said it had been a while for any – it had been a while since somebody had, like, stepped to him like that and then kind of been like – and been like, yo, you're going to do what we tell you to do. So he said he was about ready to fight or whatever because it's like, oh, this is good. Get it out of my system a little bit because I've been waiting on this. But I, but I just thought that was funny. I'm a super rookie. I, I got more money than all of y'all. <laughs> That's funny, bro. Hey, and you know they probably didn't like that because they're probably used to, like, oh, yeah, rookies coming in. We can treat them however. But hey, as soon as he says something about that pay, it's like, hey, you get a lot, but I get more than you. They not with that. <laughs> they not with that, bro. <laughs> and that was perfect timing, you could say, because he was able to see about how a lot of these players were getting ripped off. But, you know, he probably either – he wasn't looking at his contract. He had a lawyer, but he's been used to signing people. So he's looking at these contracts from a different realm, and which end up starting his sports agency thing, watching how these guys were getting ripped off with their money. And most guys probably weren't even reading contracts. I think a lot of people still don't read contracts. So that's no surprise. I think a lot of times we look at athletes, it's like, oh, my God, they don't know this. But it's like you kind of check yourself. You're like, I probably don't do these very same things. So I thought that was cool. No, I mean, I was just going to, like, to add on to your point, like, nobody ever reads the terms and conditions, but we love to shade people for, like, you know, getting into bad, like, music deals where, like, like we were talking about before, like, they have to put out, like, seven albums in, like, a year or something like that. Mm. Uh, but honestly, they people could put anything in, like, the terms and conditions on Apple or, like, whatever other website we sign up for, and, like, nobody reads it. So reading is fundamental is, I guess, my 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 word for this episode 
That is I, true. I had to get woken up with that not reading stuff whenever I signed a bad lease at Clemson, and, and, and I was trying to get out of it. And it's like, nope, there go your signature. Like, and it's like, oh my god. So that was my wake up call. I think that was at age, was that eighteen or nineteen? It's like, read. I still probably should read more because you know, there's certain situations where you're just at the counter, you're just trying to get on through. But that's how you get put in situations like that. Yeah. But I will say overall. Um, I feel like this is very strategic, uh, releasing the documentary uh, of Master P with all the different things he has going on right now. Matt, you alluded to him um, having another documentary coming out about his basketball, uh, his basketball career. But also, isn't there another documentary coming out just about him, like his life or no? Was there, is that the basketball one? No, he's got a movie coming out called The Ice Cream. And I'm pretty sure I checked the website out. Hey, y'all go buy Master P stuff. He, go, buy, go buy his stuff. Load him up. This is great information. But, yeah, he's got a movie coming out. I'm pretty sure Romeo's going to be playing him. Mm. And it's going to be called The Ice Cream Man because he has a whole productions company now. And he's feel like he's watched. Because do y'all know that movie that he was in? It's something number two. And him, Romeo, DC Youngfly, and all those guys were in it. Do y'all know the name of it? I do not. I can see it in my head. But I cannot think of the name of it. We got Matt the researcher on it. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But while you're looking that up, Matt, um, all the different things he has going on. And uh, I didn't even think about with J. Cole kind of coming out that he wants to hop into the NBA. This is a perfect time for the Master P story to be uh, to be, I guess, talked about. But uh, with all the things he's doing, he has noodles coming out like he has different wrap snacks he has uh i think someone said he had pancake mix yeah got all these rice. yeah and rice all these different products where he's like okay the hood where i come from like we live off of these things but we're buying it from somebody else why not like have someone that is putting putting this into our community that looks like us so him doing that plus uh all the things he has going on with like either Romeo or his business ventures and then looking back on his story and how he got here, it's like, oh yeah, this is the perfect time. This is a really good marketing ploy for him. I thought that it was so funny that he was talking about the ramen noodles and somebody asked somebody asked him, they were like, so what you put in the ramen noodles? And he's like, y'all ain't asked ramen that question for how many years. But now y'all want to ask me about what we putting in it. And by the way, y'all, that movie is called I Got the Hookup, too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yo, that was so funny. He was talking about that and the rice. And like, so what you putting in that? And he's like, are y'all serious? At least now it's somebody. Like, y'all had no idea who the person was, where they came from. Y'all been eating that for years. But, yeah, so he's trying to take over the productions company and the food thing. And he has a perfect kind of blueprint. Okay, start something. Nobody believes in you. Even shoes that are really big. Apparently, Charlamagne used to laugh at them in all the interviews about the shoes. And now they're actually coming along. And so, yeah, things like that. And so where the documentary, at least from what I'm – y'all might have some things to add on this. But uh, where it kind of stops right now, we've gotten through four parts. The fifth part is – come airs on Wednesday on BET. Y'all make sure y'all go check that out. Oh, yeah. So the company wasn't – was kind of going down a lot. The artists started leaving. And apparently at the preview, Romeo goes, hey, I'm ready for this. Like, I'm built for this. And so I'm sure in episode five, they're going to tell us all about, like, the career of Romeo. And I'm assuming how he revived No Limit Records. I'm not 100% sure. We're going to have to figure that out. 
Yeah, I was gonna say because like before I knew who Master P was, I knew Romeo one because there was a whole him and Lil Bow Wow thing. Like I don't really think it was a thing, but like naturally we just love to pit people against each other, and I think they were both kind of coming up at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and talking, going back to the shoes, Lil Romeo, he oh, I, I, it's probably Master P, but anyway, I, Romeo was the face for it. Had like a line of like kids shoes, and I remember my mom bought me this pair of Lil Romeo boots that I used to love wearing when I was like four. And I, ro- I wore them until they had holes in them. Like, I love this boot so much. So, Romeo, if you're listening to this episode, which I know you are, Slider Brother, a pair of 11 and a half boots. I know y'all still making them. So, You know he got them on back order, bro. You know he got, <laughs> got, <them>. got to. <laughs> hey, I don't, I don't know if the viewers uh, have peeped this, but this is the second episode where Darius is talking about supporting these shoes uh, and his mom buying black. So, hey, shout out to the queen for buying black, <laughs> supporting black, and supporting these uh, these people out here that are putting out products for us. So, shout out. Y'all was just about to say between them Marberries and them, uh, these Romeo shoes, Darius, you had shacks. You were completely black owned as a child. Uh, so, my mom was really on the stuff. I didn't put it together then, but... And it's funny because you probably talked about it. now. She's like, see, like even if she doesn't know like about all this stuff, I'm like, see there, I was trying to tell you. You know, you always gotta take credit. <laughs> you gonna take credit for it now? I know. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, the parents always will say, "Oh, you'll get it down the line." And when you're in the moment, you're like, "I ain't gonna get nothing down the line." Then when we get to a point now where we start to see stuff. We're like, "Oh, okay, I see it. I see it." That's what they were talking about for sure. And so, yeah, so y'all make sure y'all go check out, y'all make sure y'all go check it out. Go watch it all back. I think some parts are on YouTube now, as a matter of fact. Uh, go support Master P and all his ventures. I bought the shirt. Did you see the ones where he has like the no limit with the with the tank and then it said black owned on like the Ooh. top of it? Did y'all see those? Hey, we're going to have to post that. Yeah, I saw it on the website and I was like, all right, let me go ahead and buy that. And then so the DMX one's about to start. I think DMX is a little bit. I heard one of DMX songs and I was like, okay, I know that one. But that one starts next. So it seems like BET is going through this thing right now of informing everybody. And obviously this is bringing viewers too. Yeah. Um, I do not know too much about DMX. Obviously, you know who he is, like, you know, like his style of rap and everything. But I'm uh, interested in seeing like his backstory because the level of fame that he reached, uh, Obviously, I wasn't around during, like, the peaks of it, but I, I hear stories about DMX. I'm like, man, like, I, I definitely want to tune in and at least be in the know of uh, what his story is. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's coming on after the last episode of the No Limit Chron- Chronicles on Wednesday. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's just started at 10 o'clock. So we'll have part five and from 9 to 10, and then DMX, they might do – two but i don't think they will i think they'll probably do one episode and then for the next two weeks do two episodes just like how they've done no limit chronicles gotcha yeah Yeah, that should be a good one though because i mean the little bit i know about dmx like it it definitely should be a very interesting documentary i'll say that yeah yeah so i'm looking forward to that oh yeah i was about to say with uh the master p well with bet um hey and shout out to bet with coming with better content i know we called them out a little bit in a few episodes ago um but yeah they, they dropped this so they must have been working on this for a little minute so this uh the dmx documentary hopefully they get some better live tv shows where they're putting uh black people on display in a in a good light but um yeah and then hopefully some original movies on have you guys seen the new trailer for um 
Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes. Yo, that looks dope. I know we're switching gears there, but yo, that looks amazing. I can't wait till that comes out. I think it comes out in 2021, though. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that movie is based off of Fred Hampton, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Fred Hampton. Yeah, I think it's basically from the viewpoint of a guy that was with Fred Hampton. I'll have to go back and do the research because I don't know 100% of the story. But it seems like from the uh, the trailer that came out, it's from the viewpoint of the person that kind of leaked his whereabouts to the FBI, um, that kind of like betrayed him in a sense and ended up, I mean, getting him killed, but it, it looks interesting to me. I I am definitely looking forward to checking it out and hearing more about Fred Hampton. But Darius, do you have any like background info on Fred Hampton? Yeah. Uh, so basically, the kind of the short version of his life story. Uh, he was a civil rights leader during the 1960s. I believe he is more popular for working with the student non student nonviolent coordinating committee. Um, he was there, I believe, the same time as Stokely Carmichael, those, or Kwame Ture, I believe he probably changed his name before. But anyway, and he was also working with the Black Panther Party. He was really big in Chicago. And so the thing he's kind of most known for is that he actually pulled together a bunch of different, like, racial and ethnic groups around Chicago. He's working with, you know, whites, Puerto Ricans, just other Hispanic groups, Black people, obviously, uh, to come together to work towards, you know, social change, social justice, those sorts of things. Uh, which, first off, to do that sort of thing anywhere is extremely difficult and extremely rare. But to do that sort of thing in Chicago is, like, unheard of and, like, almost impossible. But, yeah, he did it anyway and was really working towards, you know, bringing all those groups together to work towards social justice. But, but um, was murdered by the police, to, honestly, to put it lightly. And that was in part... I believe it was the FBI during that COINTELPRO uh, program where it wasn't uncommon for them to have people infiltrate these different organizations and, you know, keep a close eye on people who they thought were dangerous. And by that, I mean people like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, and a host of others. And so they would have people, you know, be as close to them as humanly possible uh, to, you know, keep an eye on them, report their whereabouts. You know, if they wanted to bug a phone, they could do that, that whole sort of thing. And so, yeah, that's kind of, the longest sort of it. Yeah, and hearing that part about uh, the FBI or the government killing him, that's uh, that's what seems like the main kind of conception of what happened to him and like his legacy. Obviously, we hear uh, about the things he did and the movement that he was kind of spearheading in Chicago and uh, another person being at such a young age. But with this trailer, and obviously I haven't seen the full movie, but from the point that they are going at it with, it makes me kind of question the the direction of the movie because it's kind of pointed or it's kind of painted like, okay, this other black person betrayed this black person rather than the government killed this guy, you know? Like, so it's, it's looking like more black on black crime, like the betrayal of a, another black man by a black man. And it's kind of like, uh, sweeping under the rug that the FBI had this man killed, you know? So hopefully the story actually goes into that a little bit more than the trailer did, but either way, the movie looks great. And what's the guy that's going to be star acting it? The guy from Get Out, what's his name? Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya. Okay, yeah, he's going to be uh, And Lakeith Stanfield is in it too. Yeah, 
to both of those two. I'm glad to see a lot more of these kind of projects getting in. It's just, this is another thing Master P was saying. It's just important that, it's just important that who is owning the rights to these movies and stuff like that because you need to know who's telling the story. Because depending on who's telling the story, this is going to go turn out very differently. It could be like, like you said, the FBI did it, or it could be like, well, a black man did such and such, and that's why it happened. And it really, and the media, as we know, is so important because you control how people think. And then so if you can get the narrative away from the FBI killed him to another black man actually was ratting him out, that, that's really big, especially with how big some of these projects are going to be moving forward. Yeah. yeah. And that whole, like, who is telling the story thing is important. Uh, Adarius, and I know I'm switching topics here, but hey, Adarius, did you know that the movie Last Black Man in San Francisco was directed by a white man? Oh, my. You know what? <laughs> you know how I feel about that movie, so I'm not remotely surprised. <laughs> but, man. But, um, and uh, before, uh, disclaimer, because that kind of came out a little bit wrong. I'm not trying to get canceled. I'm not saying white people can't direct movies, but I'm saying that there's a certain amount of nuance that happens when a white person tries to tell a black person's story. Uh, an example of that would be the movie Green Book. Mm. The Help is another one. Uh, Hidden Figures, another one. I could go on. You got a receipt. Yeah, I was, yeah I'm, I, I'm not going to go off on a tangent. I'm just saying, you know, if your movie is possibly set, you know, in a predominantly black area, maybe don't have a white person tell that story but yeah anyway not surprising i really hope i don't know who's directing it's Judas um, and the but uh, ryan, ryan coogler i believe oh it's a good it's in good hands all right I'm yeah good. for sure <laughs> I, I saw that and i was like okay like i i trust where the the project is going yeah gotcha sure. gotcha so we are all looking forward to that but uh y'all y'all got anything else oh man that's it for me uh I, i'm excited to see this last episode on Wednesday of the No Limit Chronicles. Yeah, I am too. I'm really looking forward to seeing because at one point in time, I wanted to, if y'all know me, y'all know how bad this would look. But I saw Bow Wow and Romeo with the braids. I said, Mama, time to get the braids. And then, oh, you know, whenever, no. <laughs> you know, whenever you go to the little Chinese hair shop and then you see the little dudes on the little boxes and they used to have like the silk uh, cream or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that's going to be me. He looked like Bow Wow. Glad that didn't happen. But yeah, so definitely go check that out. For sure. You got anything, Darius? Oh no, I am. I am good. <laughs> Darius in the car for this episode. Y'all pray for. Him. Yeah, pray yeah, for I've the been man. Sitting in my car. My car is turned <laughs> off. So I, there's not even air running right now. I've been in my car this whole time. He's in <laughs> good old Aiken, South Carolina, too. So you know it's hot in there. Oh man. Hey Matt, maybe we can get some. Uh, a masterpiece on to figure this out or to finish this episode out probably about it about it if i'm thinking yeah about it, about it. <laughs> hey, about it. yeah let's get that in there bro yeah for sure but hey y'all so thanks for tuning in to another episode of dominate the decade podcast we're out peace you I represent, represent it's 1990s Thriller, and that's the P, yeah, they label me a drug dealer, cause I'm bout, I'm bout. I mean I'm rowdy, I have what them killers sit, everybody talk about, we doing this, we doing that, we doing what, we in the studio, whipping up dope tracks, cause we real, you better guard your grill, cause if we body body, if you ain't body, you might